1: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week I'm joined by the fabulous trumpet player, performer, arranger, composer, producer, Steve Trigg. And here's a little testimonial from Paul Weller himself, who says Steve Trigg is known as the General, and for a very good reason. He's always got great ideas, has his troops under control, and is always well turned out and looking sharp. His influences and points of reference are varied and not at all rooted in jazz, in my opinion, but in the horns of the great and good soul and funk records of the 70s. But then he and his great section can also play soft and beautiful too. Wonderful, melodic and punchy lines, and for this general, I salute you. Pretty good, right? Not only that, he's played with Mick Jagger, P.P. Arnold, Dr. Robert, Steve Craddock, Eddie Martin, British mod heroes DC Fontana, and even created one of the longest established and hardest working horn sections in the UK, the Little Big Horns touring the UK, Europe, and the Middle East extensively to this day. Steve arranged and recorded horns on both the On Sunset and Fat Pop LPs, along with the Mother Ethiopia EP, as well as being a key part of the magnificent Stone Foundation since 2016. So let's get into it. Steve Trigg, thanks for joining me.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure, Dan.
0: Now, I'm not sure whether I should call you Steve or the General. As Mr. Weller, as Mr. Weller calls you, is that right?
1: Yeah, that that, that kind of um, Neil Jones came up with that. I've got no idea why. I think he was being sarcastic and uh, accusing me of being slightly overbearing and uh, probably a little bit too bossy. But it, it's it's. Kind of stuck, really. I do quite like it. Saying, <laughs> I think you just kind of get used to it. Um, it's not.
0: It's I've not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing to be called by the modfather, is it? The general, I love
1: it. Uh, we'll dig it's into not that. Not a bad thing to be called anything, to be. Yeah, <laughs> it,
0: it's less true. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Steve, um, let's kick off. Tell me when you first discovered the music of Paul Weller. When would it have been? Can you remember?
1: Yeah, I, I can actually. It was. Um, I first saw the Jam live in I think it was 1980 I was living in a place called Wokingham not Woking Wokingham which isn't far from Reading and and in between Reading and Bratton. and the jam were playing I think they were doing the sound effects tour so they were playing Bracknell Leisure Centre which a lot of bands did I think I saw Madness and various other people there as well so yeah I saw along to that Um, I, I, I discovered them before that but that was that was kind of my first live gig they were the piranhas with a support band who had that tom hark thing i think that was all they ever did it blew me away really because i was born in this in well, I was born in the, the, the late 50s so my my kind of real formative years were in the 60s and having got sort of three elder sisters who were teenagers in the 60s so i was exposed to all of the the, the music that was kind of popular at the time so it, it's Really been part of my upbringing and part of who I am. So when the, the kind of mod revival hit, you know, Quadrophenia came out and that for me was perfect timing. I just left home. I just managed to get my hands on a, a, a scooter for the first time then. And the jam and, and, you know, a number of other bands at the time came along at exactly the right moment. It captured everything for me. And I think the thing with, with the jam was you kind of felt like they were your band. Do you know what I mean? They, they weren't, they weren't up there with the, you know, Genesis and Led Zeppelin and the kind of, you know, superstar rockers really. They were people that you could aspire to, to meet people that you could aspire to be like. And, and it galvanized a lot of things for a lot of people. So yeah, so at 1980. I saw them at Battle Leisure Centre. Then I saw them a number of times after that. Um, Bristol, Guildford, lots of different places. And then eventually I I did two of the last three gigs that they did at Wembley. Wow.
0: Proper, proper fan.
1: Yeah, I was a bit of a stalker, I to be said.
0: <laughs> And does Paul know this? Have you have you had this conversation or no?
1: But yeah, I mean not to to that extent really. Not I've never said hi, Paul. I'm I'm a bit of a stalker. Please <laughs> please just please speak to me. It's quite funny because we we were speaking about some of the gigs that they've done and his usual response is, Yeah, you tell me I don't really remember. Um and was, you know, somebody will say, Oh yeah, you played so and so, didn't you? And he said, Oh yeah, yeah, maybe if you say so, you Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was most people that were blur. But I work with bad manners a lot as well. I uh, kind of dep for their main trumpet player, I had a guy called Colin, Colin Graham. And I was talking to Colin about it one night, and it turns out that he was depping for the guy that normally played trumpet with the jam. So he played the three nights at Wembley. And so that that was a real kind of wow. leaking. I, I was saying to Paul, oh, you know, I, I know Colin and he did the, and he said yeah he remembered Colin really really well so oh, it all wow. kind of comes
0: around in a circle doesn't it it's, yeah, it's amazing it is, it? it's so funny so, so, I love yeah, how yeah. this podcast is into, into connecting all these different stories as well it's, it's lovely so uh, let's take you back to your youth because obviously um, we're not just here to talk about Mr. Weller but your side of it is a professional trumpet player and this really started you talk about like the jam and, and your formative years this started at a really young age what you do for a living now didn't it
1: yeah I mean i have always been musically inclined um, when I I was at sort of infant school, you know, I started off on the recorder, like I think most infant school kids do. Um, And then I picked up the violin for a while and and didn't really get on with that particularly well. Uh, And then when I moved to secondary school, they had a brass band they weren't around because they were they'd all gone off on tour to germany on a kind of youth exchange thing so they had like an extra week off uh, and I thought well, this sounds like it might be a bit of fun so I joined them um, and that took me by the time i was 13 i was playing in germany and holland and belgium with on the the brass band kind of tour which was fantastic experience why my parents ever thought it was a good idea to let me go i really have no idea (laughs) i think i ended up drunk in a gutter in hanover at the age of about 14 and Mm -hmm. totally lost in berlin one night when i wandered off on my own um yeah, it was a liability, really. That was fantastic schooling. Uh, and then I, I graduated from that to doing contesting, brass band contesting, at what they call championship level, which is the like kind of elite level of, of brass band contesting. And that was, again, a fantastic experience for me. And it taught you a lot of discipline. So a lot of my, I guess this is kind of where the general thing comes from as well, a lot of my attitude to playing, to working, to rehearsal, comes from that kind of discipline you know it comes from that, that old school professional being professional is not about getting paid being professional is about having an attitude if somebody employs me to do a job then i will do the best job i can possibly do and i'll be on time and i'll have learned what i need to have learned and that's the way that you get us back that's where your repeat business comes from and then i, I discovered that uh, I've had this love of jazz music as well, um, and I'd learned I kind of learned to play a lot of my when I switched to trumpet from cornet. I used to play along to all the Louis Armstrong records and uh, and just try and emulate what Louis was doing. From that, I got into playing with big bands and swing bands, which were again totally different discipline. And it kind of went from there really. I, I felt I've fallen into everything quite accidentally. Somebody said to me one day, "Ah, oh, my dad's managing a band and they need a trumpet player for a horn section. Is that the sort of thing you do?" And I've never done any of it. At all before in my life at that point, so I said, "Yes, of course, I do that all the time." Um, you yeah, know, where would you like me? Where would you like me there? And it's it's been a kind of a, a thing ever since, really.
0: <laughs> and as a jam fan, then, so so as a jam fan and and then a jazz fan, presumably, a the jam splitting up must have been devastating, but b the style council must have been pretty exciting for you, right?
1: Oh, no, I went into a complete (laughs) (laughs) assult. The the last night at Wembley, I'd gone i would got to say two nights on the trot. I've gone with a mate of mine called Dave, uh, who was too young to drive and we didn't want to take the scooters up. So he borrowed his brothers, what we used to call the plastic pig. Cause we all had like relying, I had a reliant van, the same as Del Boy, you know, yeah. uh, cause you could drive those on a motorbike license. You didn't need to pass your test, but he was only 15 anyway. So he'd borrowed his brothers. I uh, had no tax, no insurance, no MOT and the gear stick kept coming out. <laughs> and so we'd hacked it up to Wembley. for for two nights and on the 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 last night which was the third night of the three they did there when they took the final bow and they went off we both stood there and just kind of stared into space you know it was it was like somebody had died and i flatly refused to have anything to do with the star council (laughs) out of complete (laughs) bloody mindedness i didn't like it i wasn't going to listen to it i wasn't going to entertain it and the fact that a lot of the early Star Council stuff was very, very similar to a lot of the later jam stuff as well. I mean, you know, it's not that I couldn't have liked the music, yeah. but I was having a bit of a hissy thing. Um So I didn't get into it. So I, 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 yeah, I made a. For the error of my ways, not too long after that. But yeah, so for a while, I wasn't having any of it at all. Wow.
0: I mean, you're not the only one. There are many, many jam fans who won't entertain any thought of the Style Council or Paul Weller solo. So
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You see the criticisms of some of the live gigs now and and it's, well, he's not playing any of the early stuff. Well, when you've got a back catalogue, which is as, as impressive as Paul's is, you can play what you want. You know, and he does play a lot of the early stuff as well. But it isn't all about that. Like I say, once I got into the Star Council, there was there was absolutely no stopping me. It was it was musically a revelation, I think. Yeah. So so cool in a in a in a good way and in a kind of hip, you know, that European hip way that it was it was just something else really. And and yeah, absolutely iconic.
0: At which point did you forgive Paul? So was it was it that he became a solo artist, and at that point you ventured back in, or
1: no? I guess it was around right about my favourite shot. When I listened, I thought actually this is really very clever stuff. You know, um, I'd better stop being a complete arsehole. and. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yourself a favor and, and dig out some of the rest of it but I was allowed a little bit of salt that's how important I've not necessarily had this this conversation before because you, you sometimes it can be a little bit embarrassing really to say do you do you realize just how important you've been to so many people you changed a lot of people's lives mm. um, yeah, and to this day it's still I think it's still having that kind of impact that's a major achievement in anybody's book and there are there are few people I think let alone musically who can claim to have had that level of influence
0: and also to do it through constant iterations you're right so it's like you know the jam means so much to so many people but so does the style council to the same people and separate people and then the solo years as well you know I discovered Paul in, in the early solo years and from that moment of hearing a ho yeah it's been it's been a massive connection but before that the jam the style council there weren't things in my life. I don't, you know, said uh, I, I, uh, I don't remember anyway. It was that, that connection, yeah, fine. maybe. I don't know. I remember, <laughs> I remember being dragged in to see Live Aid on the telly, but apart from that, no. It was that connection with that solo stuff, and has been there ever since. And then digging into the back catalogue, the Jam, the Style Council, loving all that as well. Let's talk about Stone Foundation. So this is presumably where you first connect with Paul Weller. So you become a, you were working with the band and then became a full time member. Was that how it worked?
1: Well, I'd worked with them on and off. Uh, I'd, I'd stood in on various occasions when whichever trumpet player they had at the time uh, wasn't available. Um, So I'd done a few gigs with them. And I knew the guys because I was in another band in the same kind of area and everybody knew everybody else. And it was quite a kind of close community really so I'd stood in for them a couple of times and we'd had a conversation um, about whether or not I wanted to join permanently they'd, they'd lost one trumpet player and were looking for another one so they said did I want to come on board at that point and that was around about the time I think when they were they just toured with the specials So I'd kind of, they were obviously kind of going places, but I just started a solo project with a singer that I'd been working with previously and we were writing and recording our own material. So I, I, I turned it down at that point. And so they they got a, a different trumpet player in, but I then I got involved again some years later on. I stood in for the other guy on a session we were doing um, for Craig Charles with Nolan Porter. Uh, you know, God rest his soul, he, he's only recently departed. But um, that was just one of those real, real pinch me moments. And we were in the studio in Manchester in the new sort of TV uh, um, studios there. We called in uh, P Five a Firm and, and you know and all the all the great. Songs and you just look and this voice like like honey is just kind of flowing out of this guy, you know. And when we did it, I could only be sure it was, you know, I get goosebumps now even thinking about it. But at that point, I was still depping I was still just standing in for them. But we'd done a couple of gigs on the run up to that where we had two trumpets. It was a really quite a nice sound, and I think I think Neil. She's being Neil Jones. Both they they really liked that kind of sound. It it gave us that lighter jazzier type feel. So I did a few more, and then when they started to get involved, because they got the call from Paul, uh, and I know Neil's told you the story of the you know the the, getting the phone call from Paul and thinking it was a practical joke (laughs) to say that he really wanted to be you know involved and did they want to work on this song that he was working on, and that they'd gone into the studio and that had started to become the, the the bones of the first album. that that, that paul produced and at that point they said to me look we want to have a bit of a shake-up we're moving up a level right the way across the board we're just about to go into the studio with paul do you want to be involved (laughs) (laughs) let me think about that for a a minute (laughs) you know how much do i have to pay you
0: (laughs) (laughs) the jam fan and he was like oh my god this this yes 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 yes
1: yeah yeah and it, and that was it, really. So I got involved. They'd already recorded a couple of tracks for the first album. So, it, you know, th- that was already in the can because we'd recorded some of it, at, or they'd recorded some of it at our place, at our um, rehearsal place. So we hadn't yet gone into the studio with, with Paul. So I, I went along. We got we got a second trumpet player in. Dave joined us at, at the same time. Um, I think that was probably just the fact that he contacted them and said he was interested in, in working with them as well. We needed a sax player to rob percussion. Rob knew Tony from a, another band, uh, so Tony came along as well, and it just kind of gelled, really. And mm-hmm. then, so yeah, we trooped off to the off to the studio. But that was two thousand. Mm-hmm. 16, I guess, something like that. Um And we wrote Paul in as well. And Paul has been around the band for years and years and years. He's actually from the same kind of area. He grew up in the same area, I believe. And, and he'd recorded with them on some of their earlier albums. And he plays baritone and flute. And Paul was uh, an original member of Dex's. So he played on all those, you know, Gino and all the big hits. So we went in as a four-piece. Uh, and it was just, there was no looking back, really. It, it was everything I wanted in a band everywhere I wanted to be, playing, you know, with the people I wanted to be involved in. And they gave me a, a real free reign on the hall arrangements as well, which wasn't something that, that had previously happened with the band. Uh, but the first sort of few songs we did, they knew what they wanted us to play. Uh, but from there on in, I had more and more kind of Freedom to, to work through the horn arrangements and to, to come up with the horn arrangements that we wanted to work with.
0: And I said at the beginning, you're a trumpet player, but there's so much more to your armory as the general, in the sense that yeah, yes, you're a performer, but you're also an arranger, composer, producer, and we'll get onto the work that you've done with Paul separately in a sec as well around that arrangement stuff. But there's so there's so many strings to your bow. But it must have been really exciting when not only the album Street Rituals gets an amazing reaction in terms of all the songs and, and you gigging live, but also you're touring around the world at that point as well, right?
1: The had been to japan a, a fair number of times before that my wife didn't speak to me for ages you're going where for a gig <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah we did the blue note in tokyo which was was, was fantastic and I, we did we were two days of gigging we did two gigs a day so we weren't there an incredibly long time um we did gig in the Saturday afternoon, gig Saturday evening, gig Sunday afternoon, and gig Sunday evening, and then I had Monday off and then came home again. And, and also, yeah, so we toured a lot around Europe, Germany, um, it's a lot of geese in Spain. Uh, we've got a really, really, really good following in, in all of those places.
0: And we talked a lot with Neil about the connection with Paul and Paul really being a massive supporter of the band all the way through and, and getting involved in bits and bobs in terms of the album, singing on you know on some tracks and things. But I wanted to focus on with you with the Mother Ethiopia EP, which is something that not every Weller fan will be aware of, I'm sure. But you had a big role in that in terms of like arranging the horns, writing and working with Paul on this. And this was a, a three-track EP oh, of which the Stone Foundation worked with Paul on, on one of them but was that was that the whole band or was that specifically yeah it,
1: it was it was the whole band yeah Paul had an idea that he wanted to do this sort of it was kind of what well, you can tell from the title kind of where his brain was and we had a discussion uh about what it was going to kind of come out like people kept saying well you know a that's 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 where we're kind of going with it it's that kind of feel to be honest I wasn't massively familiar with uh, a lot of his stuff Really, I mean, I knew of him and I'd heard some of it. So I did what I always do when I'm faced with that kind of challenge and I soak everything up. I downloaded everything I could find and just put it on continual loop and listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. I do that a lot. You know, it's not about getting ideas and it's not about saying, well, I can make it sound like that if I copy this bit or I copy that bit. It's about trying to get inside somebody's head um, and understand where that's, that's coming from. I said, okay, I've got some ideas and Basically, we went into the studio and recorded everything I'd thought of. It was like a stream of consciousness, really. And they said, right, there's all the bits. You go off and make them fit where you want to make them fit. So Paul did that and he took the bits he liked and we repeated some bits and and edited bits in and out.
0: I haven't been aware of, um, I think it's Bongo Bob is one of the tracks and the Kra Collective is the other, which is this London-based Ethiopian three-piece. But I hadn't...
1: Yeah, Bongo Bob's not percussion player. Oh, is he? I didn't know that. oh, yeah, right. oh yes. Oh, right. I didn't realise yeah, that. Yeah, that was all us. <laughs> Two straight ones of us, and I think the third one is a remix. Um, but yeah, it's all us on there.
0: Right. Oh, right. So you're on all three tracks. I hadn't realised
1: yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, the brass is not on all three, but one of them features very, very heavily with the brass, and the other one's got the, the brass remixed in. That was fantastic. I bought several copies of that. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lovely looking thing as well the artwork i really like is really yeah cool. it's great man. yeah it's really cool he, he has a habit of stealing you at times so the forest gigs and i'm trying to think this is 2019 i think was it uh, 2018 i'm trying to remember well, now yeah, so this was really actually i think it's the last time paul performed live outside right that wasn't so, so we've had the real festival horses then but i think it must have been the last time we had a proper light like, outside yeah, probably gig. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that come about? Because not only, I think the Stone Foundation supported Paul at those, but then he also used the horn section. So were you double shifting?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd used us before. He used us at the Albert Hall for the um, Teenage Cancer Trust gig. That that was a year or so before that. We were kind of added on as an afterthought. The main support was uh, Kelly Jones. I was there, I remember. And then yeah. Basically, Paul had said to the guys that, you know, do you want to come and do a, a kind of support slot? You can only have half an hour, but you can open the, the evening at the, the Albert Hall. So we said, yeah, of course, that's absolutely brilliant. And so we were, we were all kind of geared up for doing that. And then oh, Neil phoned me up and he said, I think Paul's going to give you a ring uh, about playing some stuff on his set. And within half an hour, my mobile's gone. And this kind of yeah, this gruff voice at the end. So, watch oh, right, it's Paul. <laughs> so, I found myself somebody to kind of sit. He said, oh, "Do you want to do you want to come and play? Or do you want to do a couple of Star Council tracks with us at the, at the Albert Hall gig?" So I said, "Yeah, you yeah. know, if you think, you know, if you think it would kind of work out, all right." So he said, "Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I like what you did on Mother Ethiopia. Yeah. Can you come along and do what did we do? Ever had it blue and um, ever change your moods?" Wow. Yeah. So I said, Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fine. We can we can do that, it's not a problem. So I said, with the Ever Addict Blue, it's got like that really kind of iconic arrangement that Gil Gil Evans did, you yeah. know. And he said, Yeah. Not sure I'm overly keen on that. Can you see if you can come up with something better? I thought, I oh, don't this is Gil Evans <laughs> we're talking about. Can I come up with something better? Well, I'll have a go, but I'm not any <laughs> so we rocked up the for the Albert Hall gig. We haven't had any rehearsals. we just None at all? No, no. That was, wow. that was, well, I'd run through it with the four-piece section. We'd done it ourselves, you know, but we'd not rehearsed with the band. The first time we'd played with the band was in a soundcheck. So uh, we did that. And that was just, yes, that was a mind-blowing experience just to play at the Albert Hall, but also, you know, in our own right, it was fantastic. To play on Paul's set as well was tremendous. And how are you feeling? So we, was there,
0: there was, a, I mean, obviously, there's a mixture of excitement and and sheer terror, presumably.
1: Oh, absolutely terrified! Yeah, I mean, I don't get. I, I know a lot of people say where they get really nervous before a gig, and I know Paul says exactly the same. He still gets nervous, you know, before he goes on. And I don't. That's not because I'm overly confident or cocky. I guess it's just the way it is. I wasn't nervous about the playing, and I wasn't nervous about playing in front of that many people. But you don't want to go cocking up. On an occasion like that, really. So yeah, you you are very careful to make sure you're you're on the the top of your game. And we'd already done our set. Then Kelly Jones had done his set, and then Paul had, had done part of his set. And I think he just had Ronnie Wood and Kelly Jones on singing an old faces song. So yeah, we were slightly anxious. But then once it's over, the adrenaline is absolutely fantastic. And I came, I came off stage, and I'd gone into the backstage bar by the dressing rooms. And there was a, a security guy on the door and he stopped me as I'm about to go into the bar to get a drink. He said, Oh, you're from Stone Foundation, aren't you? And of course I've my chest is sort of puffed up a little bit and I'm, yeah. He said, You're banned. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed in the bar. You're a lot of binary and fridge twice. Sleep your hook. You do really? know this as a charity, don't you? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, so we actually got barred from the bar. Um, oh but off, off the back of that when we landed the support slot for the summer tour which was obviously the first big big piece of news and we were really really excited to be doing that uh, and then Paul had said you know he'd phoned me up and said Is, do, you, do you want to come and play a few things with us on that as well and I said yeah yeah fantastic you know what do you want us to do and he would started off by sending me some songs to play that we never ended up doing I can't remember what they were now but there was a couple of Star Council ones and, and some odd bits and pieces that had horns on that we ended up not playing on it kind of got more. And more as we went through, and she just phoned me up. So I've just added another one on. I want you to do this. So we ended up we did Holy Man, Peacock Suit, Start, and uh, Precious into Move On Up, which wow, was the, yeah. the last number before they came back on and did the encore. So that was brilliant. I mean, there's there's no horns in Peacock Suit. So I had to come up with something for that. He had a couple of ideas and I had a couple of ideas and we bounced that around. Obviously, Precious has got that fantastic horn line in it and and we segued it in to move on up as well. So that was that was kind of perfect. I had to come up with some additional horn lines for start as well because there's only that kind of one bit towards the end of the the single. So I came up with some extra little bits for that as well. Yeah, so we did. We were double shifting. So we did our slot and then while everybody else was off celebrating and having a few drinks, we were getting ready to go back on and do, do the slot at the end of Paul's set. Did you go to any of those?
0: I went to the Setford um, ones, the one in Kent's, yeah.
1: The rush to get out at the end yeah. is just a complete uh, bottleneck. So we came off stage after we'd finished our last number which was, was move on up Paul's gone back out to do the encore and we've got the length of time that he does an encore to pack our kit up get it in the car and try to get out before the rest of the traffic started clogging all the roads up so.
0: <laughs> they were lovely gigs I have to say and I don't know if the weather was brilliant for all of them but certainly in Kent it was a lovely blue sky beautiful day
1: the first night we were at Tetbury the Algorithm uh, mm. Westenburg Arboretum which is just down the road from where I live so that was the local gig for me and it had been raining for days and days before that but the sun came out for the gig in the evening and then that stayed with us for the rest of the tour and we did all of those we also did the Horns did Cardiff Castle in fact the only one we didn't do was the I think they went to Dublin. Stone Foundation didn't go on that one and the horns didn't go. Stone Foundation weren't supporting it Cardiff Castle, but we had a night off. So I cheekily asked him whether he fancied us doing that as well. <laughs> and he said, What well, if you if you're free, yeah, come on, come on over and do that. So we did the additional one as well. Miles Kane, I think, was the support for that.
0: Yeah, it was lovely and I think hearing some songs that we hadn't heard for a while as well. A like Holy Man you mentioned there off of Wildwood. Yeah, Strange yeah. Museum. Yeah, but even Precious, I hadn't heard for a while, Live as well. And and you hear these songs and you're like, oh my... I mean, how he selects a set list, I do not know.
1: Oh, no idea. No, no idea. And I know they... they See, we were supposed to rehearse for that. And he, he phoned me up and he said, look, we've got... Three days of rehearsal at the barn. I think there were two days of rehearsal where they would go into a, a production rehearsal where they've got all the, the stage sort of set up as it would be on the night. He said, why don't you come along to, I don't know, the Wednesday or whatever it was? So I said, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. I've got all the arrangements. Everything's sorted. We'll be there. And then he phoned me the day before and said, I've, I've, I've copped up. We're not actually doing anything on the Wednesday night. And so I don't, we're not going to get a rehearsal in. So he said, don't worry. Before we go on stage at Westonburg, we will just get together and, and, and make sure everything's all right. I said, okay, fine, all right. So we pitched stuff at Westonburg and there's there's a really great picture that uh, Andy Croft took, which is in his book of the, th- of the three horns. We pull on an acoustic guitar in the tent behind stage at, at Westenburg, so we said, OK, we said, well, I'll run through it. And, you know, you play along. And we started on, I think that might have been Holy Man, which he normally plays on piano, I think. And so he's got his acoustic guitar. So we started running through the horns on that. And he said, I don't know the chords on the guitar. I said, I've only ever played it on the piano. <laughs> he said, This is going to be all right, Trig, isn't it? So I said, yeah, honestly, trust me, Paul, it will be absolutely fine. He said, you're not going to let me down, either. I said, no, trust me it Will be perfect, he said, Hold on, he's, he's right. the one
0: who doesn't know the cause, though, isn't he? <laughs> it's
1: more the other way around. You yeah, I think he said he knew them on the piano, but he wasn't sure where they were on at the time. Brilliant! So, again, as <laughs> I'd done all my career, I was blagging it. Yeah, I said, Yeah, it will be perfect for honesty, trust us.
0: Man, that is remarkable! Wow, that is that. <laughs> that's incredible. But I mean, it shows the faith that he has in, in you and, and your horn section. though, doesn't it? Right? The boy's a fool. <laughs> <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> or he doesn't care one way or the other. He never loses. But he obviously loves working with you because there's a credit for you. I've got the, I've got the lovely, beautiful vinyl up there of On Sunset. You and Phil Vecock credited for Brass Arrangements. Um, and yeah. you're mainly, is it, it's the main two tracks, More and Old Father Time, which are, are your work. Is that right?
1: Yeah. We were a bit of an afterthought on it. Um, I, which I appreciate. I mean, Phil is is a fantastic player and a great arranger. And, uh, you know, I know a couple of the other guys that he had in the section. You know, we're talking top, top Horn players here. Johnny I mean, If you buy, if you've got any album from the 70s or Jameera Choir, almost anybody you can think of from the 70s, you look at the Horn credits, John's on all of them. You know, he, he's... At level 42, he was their main guy. He's on loads and loads of great people. So they did, as they had done previously, the bulk of the album. And then I think Paul had just two extra tracks that he wanted to do. They'd been in, done they bit, and gone. And this was some weeks or so after that he had two more tracks. I like to think he trusted enough of what we'd done to know we were going to be able to do it. Uh, I'm tempted to think we were probably slightly cheaper if they get the the, <laughs> the guys back in, um, but who knows really?
0: Yeah, I mean it's an incredible album, isn't it? And I mean those two tracks stand out for me as well. I love I love both of those so much. But
1: I think it's a fantastic album.
0: Yeah. What did it feel like then to kind of have you, have your name on a Weller album and be part of that?
1: You can't buy it, can you? Um, I was going around the house showing the kids who were you know I'm I never quite you're never quite sure how impressed kids are with things their parents do. But look look look, you see that? Yeah, it, it, it kind of blew me away really i mean and he's so, so so generous with his credits as well you know you get some people that you just say you know you, you'd have got a kind of very brief mention but we were mentioned on there several times yeah it's it's a privilege it's, a, it's still a pinch of a moment i was saying to somebody else um the first time we went in the studio when we were doing street rituals and paul was there i've always had this this tried to have this attitude of i'm there because i'm good enough to be there you know so i don't need to apologize to anybody for it and that's, I know that sounds big, but you have to have that mindset because if you start letting any self-doubt creep in, then that's when you start to make mistakes. I did um, a session for Mick Jagger on one of his solo albums quite a few years ago and wasn't expecting Jagger to be there. We were in an Olympic studio in London. And when he walked in, it does take the wind out of sails a little <laughs> bit. But I thought, I'll ask for his autograph. If he asks for my autograph, but if he doesn't, I'm not gonna bother. Um <laughs> and I've taken that attitude with me, really. And it's the same, you know, with Paul, you just try he, Paul's just Paul you know. He's got no airs and graces, he, he's not pretentious, he's not the great rock star, you know, he's busy making you a cup of tea or taking a run down to the chip shop to get some food, the same as everybody else does. But you find yourself just having a sneaky look over your shoulder and think, that's Paul Weller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't help yourself. It gets easier with time, yeah. slightly, but not not always.
0: No, well, I bet, I bet. Um <laughs> You mentioned um, Mick Jagger. I mean, others you've worked with Steve Winwood, Ruby Turner, um, Jim Capaldi, Robert Plant. You also play in horn sections alongside Pee Wee Ellis. So, Pee Wee Ellis was um, James Brown and um, for ages. Yeah, yeah. yeah, ages. Van Morrison's music director and arranger as well, for God knows how long. Um, That must have been pretty cool.
1: Oh, that was amazing. I'd been part of, and I still am part of a horn section called the Little Big Horns. And we've been working as a kind of separate unit on and off for. Donkeys years now. We don't do a lot together anymore. Uh, everybody's gone off and doing their own thing. But we have in the past been really, really active. And we were working with a blues guitarist from Bristol, a guy called Eddie Martin, who's a fantastic blues guitarist, fantastic blues band. And Eddie lives not far outside of Bristol, and Pee Wee lives like a stone's throw from Eddie down in the south. And so he got Pee Wee to play on his latest album and we were doing it we're recording it in like the old-fashioned way of everybody being in the same room at the same time with just a handful of mics and so we were all there recording that, and Pee Wee had done some horn arrangements for that as well, which we were lucky enough to record. We was recording alongside Pee Wee was fantastic, and to watch him soloing as well—he had to sit down a lot of the time. He's not, you know, he's not the youngest guy, but he only ever does three takes. If you don't get it in three takes, you ain't getting it at all, you know.
0: One of my very first gigs in radio was working—I did work experience and was like a junior producer at the BBC in Bristol, so not far from you from the oh, yeah. Echo of the woods. And um, the, one of the shows I was producing, the John Turner Show. Um, God rest his soul, is no longer with. This was a lovely guy, but
1: um, no, I, I, I used to listen to John Turner.
0: Oh, he's was fabulous! Wasn't he he a lovely Pee Wee Ellis was one of the guests one day. We had, we had him on. I could not understand a word that Pee Wee was saying because everything he said,
1: it, it, yeah,
0: it's all uh, or it's, uh, uh, he talks like um you know the guy out of um, Police Academy. Yeah. <laughs> he talks like you would expect him to play the play an instrument. It was
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah. He, he was yeah, what a character. I have to say, what a the,
1: the history in the room. Yeah, you just you just struck by the legacy that's kind of standing in front of you you know Yeah, yeah. I was again with Eddie we were lucky enough to work with Dick Hextell Smith Dick was the the sax player the go-to sax player in the 60s so he was with John Mayall and Coliseum and all of those bands that were in that British R&B beat room in the, in the early 60s Dick was the man he was absolutely fantastic yeah I've been really lucky to play with some really inspiring people yeah
0: fair. there's another, actually there's another BBC Radio Bristol connection between myself and you i don't know if you know what it is uh no go on mr mike darbo so mike darbo you what you you played on an album of his right Uh,
1: yeah i did yeah yeah mike was uh, again because mike was not living not far from here i think he's living mainly in the states now but yeah he lives in gloucester and he, he was uh he had a show on radio bbc radio gloucester for quite a long time as well and he was touring with the manfreds um and he's he's being sort of berated, I think, by the rest of the band because everybody else had a solo CD on the merch stand apart from apart from Mike. So he was uh, recording in, in a little studio in Stroud, DB Studios in Stroud. He did his solo album there. And well, that was fantastic as well. What a nice guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was incredible. So, I mean, not only a brilliant songwriter, so things like Handbags and Glad Rags and Build Me Up Buttercup and things like that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Just some...
1: And a finger of fudge as <laughs> well. He wrote that. did not know that. Did you not? Yeah, no, I did he not that. know that. Um, but
0: he, <laughs> he was wonderful. So a very quick story. He used to... So he did the evening show on BBC Radio Bristol, right? And we were like his little tech Cops. We were only like, I suppose it's been like 17, something like that. And there was a bit where there was a guy who'd come in and he had these big reel-to-reel tapes who present this um, this film review, which was about half an hour, 45 minutes long. And yeah. he'd give it to Mike and Mike would play it during his show. And at that point, Mike would go off to the BBC bar, have a couple of drinks while this 45 minute kind of cinema is playing. And it's our job to put it on, start it off. He'd be in the BBC bar listening to it. And then at the point where it came to a certain bit, he he needs to shuffle back to do his radio show again. It's hilarious, right? So one time we put it on, and it starts off he goes off to the BBC bar we'd copied it and we had it on another reel-to-reel machine and we skipped it to the end <laughs> and he's <laughs> he's half a drink through and suddenly goes and uh, you know that's the end of uh, Friday film news for this week and suddenly oh Mike's like oh he's over the BBC bar I still like it back as a hilarious person but no lovely another lovely guy and um, a couple more questions for you before we go um, Fat Pop Volume 1 is just around the corner by the time this pod- podcast is out it might be in the shops already have you had anything to do with it what do you know
1: yeah were. Oh, we've clearly done a reasonably good job on uh, on sunset because he asked us back to do the brass for for fat pop yeah, you know, I've not spoken to Phil actually. but um, I hope he's not too upset because we did all of it this time. Sorry, Phil. It's f- ah, fantastic. There's probably less brass on it, less what I would call traditional brass on it. And Paul and Stan, who was producing it, had much more of an idea. Um, I think of what they wanted. So he would send me the sort of demo track with a few ideas and say, "Right, this is kind of what we want. Can you work something up?" We did that. Credit of the arranging and the the horns on that as well. Again, the same the four piece. Wow. so we did true dad times wrong moving canvas still glides. so we, those are the four kind of tracks from the main album that we did and then there, there's a thing called fat mix on there as well which is a 16 minute long journey into i don't know where he said he wanted to do a 16 minute track because it was his 16th studio album nice and okay the, rationale. the brief was right there's no key there's no time signature. There's no backing track. Just go and play some shit. <laughs> you want us to all play together as a section? No. Just go play. So all four of us were just in the studio, free-forming. So we, we recorded loads and loads of stuff and then took it away with Stan to take the bits they wanted and to drop them into the places that they wanted them to be. Very difficult to describe exactly what it's like it'd be interesting to see what reaction they get
0: that way of working is remarkable because I think it's it kind of seemed like to me it kicked off very much with a bit of like wake up the nation sonic kicks around that time of that way of yeah. working and you mentioned like him doing that similar approach on the Ethiopia EP in terms of that cut and paste thing is is so interesting in terms of how he works now not on every track <laughs> when it, when the track lends itself to it it's just like building up layers all the time is lovely
1: yeah and it's been it's been a really interesting experience to watch or to, to, to hear how some of the tracks have evolved because I've been lucky enough to get the early stage demos. They're quite kind of skeletal. It's almost like watching an artist, I mean, you know, like Van Gogh or or somebody layering things up to create an image that they've got internally, but also being able to move where their kind of target and their goal is. And so as a thing develops, it takes on a life of its own and things that you thought you might want to do, you're no longer going to do, and new ideas kind of lend themselves to the way it's developing. There'll be a track and there'll just be like two or three little guitar modes that weren't on there previously. All of a sudden, it, it, it changes it. It makes it different. It transcends where it was. And you wonder what sort of brain, what sort of mind listens to that and goes ah, well that just needs three notes mm. whereas you know your average kind of punter is going to go i've written the song that's how the song goes or i might want a second guitar part on it somewhere or maybe we can add some keyboards but it's it's the addition of those almost fine little brush strokes if you listen to the songs in the way they're constructed and they're so in- intricate yet so simple yeah you're watching a genius at work and there are i don't use that very, very widely to describe an awful lot of people. But yeah, it, it's a fantastic to watch and fantastic to see those things develop.
0: It's also a, a confidence, isn't it? Because I think it would be very easy for that to become a complete car crash of noise that just doesn't work. <laughs> this, this kind of layering and how he, those brush strokes and how you put it, it's a beautiful way of describing it, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's. it's a, I, I, think, I always say with with you know, music is a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Um, and the way you go about composing or creating music is different for different people. I always think when somebody gives me a song that says this needs horns on it they may not be right and I'll, I'll listen to stuff and go Do you know it doesn't need horns on it it's fine as it is but if it does want some horns on it it's not for me to add a horn arrangement it's for me to release the horn arrangement that's already in the song nice this is why you're the general man
0: <laughs> this is an education I have to say <laughs> I love it. Two final questions before you go. And, and I've loved every second yeah. of this. Thank you so much, man. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council or Solo. Which one's it going to be?
1: Ooh, um, you know, I think I would go one of my early favourites would probably be Butterfly Collector. And, I, and that's not to say it's the best thing you've ever done or, or yeah, anybody else's favourite. But it meant a lot to me at the time because it was about that. And this isn't about me saying, oh yeah, the jam were great, everything after it, it's it's been nowhere near as good. But it's that particular song for me was really important. So I guess if I had to pick one, that would be the one.
0: Final question before you go. So the purpose of this podcast is not only to talk to lovely people like yourselves, but it's to get that final interview with Paul, the end of the series, the interview with Paul that I never managed to get throughout my entire radio career. If it happens, when it happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there a question that I really should ask him?
1: well wow. don't talk to him about football because there's a Chelsea flag <laughs> at Black Barn, but it presumably he's not into the footy is he there is a Chelsea flag at Blackburn and um, um, that is Paul's club that's who he supports okay. I believe. Well, I'm, a Ch- I'm a Chelsea fan so you know Chelsea are my second club I'm, ah. a, I'm a Bristol Rovers fan ah. first and foremost but you know when you grow up in a town where your club is playing in the lower divisions when you're a kid you always pick up what was a first division club so I pick Chelsea I don't know I don't know it's, it's difficult isn't it because he's been asked every everything by everybody ever. If you really want it to to, to kind of inspire conversation with him, it's about new music. I think he's, he's constantly discovering stuff and he's constantly sending stuff around to people and saying, have you heard this? Have you heard this? don't know where he gets half of it from, but I know that the guys as well will always send him something when, something new comes onto our kind of radar other people have
0: mentioned and, t- and we have talked about that every time I read an interview with Paul he's recommending something that then takes you off down a little alley into yeah, yeah. whether it's um, today I just bought some tour tickets for Villagers which was something I discovered through Paul God I'm trying to think now maybe 10 years ago a bit longer yeah. Declan O'Rourke again actually got tour
1: tickets for him today as well was discovered through Paul right. Tony our sax player plays on that album as well oh,
0: on Arrivals it's a lovely album from Declan it's yeah. brilliant it's really cool but yeah he's always interested uh, I don't know where, where, does he, where does he find all this stuff from. I don't, you know, it's not like the radio's introducing him to it these days.
1: So, so where does he? I don't from? know. I must be. I, I mean, people send him stuff all the time, uh, yeah. but he listens to music. You know, I, I, I know well-known musicians who don't actually listen to a lot of music, other than what they're working on themselves. But Paul does, and he listens to a lot of music by a lot of a lot of people he's constantly discovering stuff as well that other people have been into for some time you know I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this but historically he was never a big Bowie fan it's difficult to, to know with Paul because a lot of the, the things that he said when he was younger were off the cuff um, sometimes for effects but he, he certainly wasn't into a lot of the kind of what that whole glam rock stuff at the time. So I don't think Bowie wasn't particularly on his on his radar in the early days, but it certainly is now. And you can hear a lot of Bowie influences mm. in um, a, a lot of the newer material, which is great, really.
0: This has been so lovely, I have to say. Trigger, Triggs, Steve, the General, I'm not sure what we ended up in, in deciding, <laughs> but this has been absolutely a, a joy to spend time with you and hear these stories. So thanks so much for your time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. My thanks once again to the General Steve Trigg. What an absolute blast. And do check out Stone Foundation's new single, Echoes of Joy, which was released this very week. Next up on the Paul Weller Fan Podcast radio broadcaster nay legend Peter Gordon. Born in Guildford PG has ruled the Surrey Airways for over 25 years interviewing local boy Paul Weller on plenty of occasions too. We'll hear about his favourite gigs chats with Paul Bruce and Rick and about the unveiling of Woking's tribute to the jam back in 2012 that PG was lucky enough to be MC for. If you enjoy this podcast then please share on social media you can also buy me a coffee and leave a review. Find out more in my show notes. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, it's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time.